the leap so that you too, like Richard Thatcher, can survive. But the spirit is a wild spirit. It has never learned to live in human company. Richard's body, filled as it was with his élan vital, was too intense. In any case, the spirit's laughter turned to moans, and I expect that it would be less likely these days to strike a bargain. Welcome to Open Book, the Poet to Poet series. I'm your host, producer, Nina Serrano, and my guest today is Paul Richards, retired carpenter and publisher of Estuary Press, a multimedia publishing company. He's also my life partner over these last 40 years and husband. Welcome to Open Book, Paul Richards. Thank you, Nina. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, I'm so happy to have you. I wonder if you could share with us some of your poems from the chapbook, Refusenik. I'd be glad to. Thanks. This poem is called Equipment USA. Equipment USA. Stuck on a freeway in another traffic jam, hot pavement warming 10,000 tires, holding up metal vehicles assembled from 10,000 factories, supplied from 10,000 mines, coming out of 10,000 years of our quest for equipment. Stuck in another traffic jam where you can wear a shirt to match your car, where your heart beats faster, because it's so cool the way that deep throb of an engine projects you down the highway with the touch of your toe. It's not just cars. Oh, no. Check it out next time you're driving. Check out the trucks and the vans and the pickups. The dualies. Uh, that's double wheels on the rear axle. The SUVs. That's uh, sports utility vehicles. Tahoe, Suburbans, Broncos, Explorers, Expeditions, the RVs, that's recreational vehicles. Those houses on wheels with all the convenience of home, pulling trailers filled with motorcycles. The ATVs, that's all-terrain vehicles. Jet skis, bicycles, roof racks full of water skis and surfboards, wind sails and piles of luggage. All that good stuff, all that equipment. Oh, how we love our equipment. We have to have it. We're not happy without our equipment to keep us occupied so that our hearts and minds won't stumble sometimes in the quiet solitude of a forest or at the beach or even in our own backyards. Stuck in a traffic jam, there's that guy passed me a minute ago with his windows up, sitting in his red coupe, trimmed in gold, snapping his fingers and bobbing his shoulders to the beat of a song I could not hear. While he weaved in and out between my car and theirs, up over the hill and away, he reminded me of all the time over the years I traveled, stoned out of my head, the smoke floating up through the steering wheel in an air capsule hurtling down the endless concrete ribbon of highway. 
So many times going down the road in complete rapture with the buzz in my brain, a four-wheeled vehicle hissing through the air across the earth, rubber tires screaming against concrete, breaking all the strands of connectedness and continuity with the illusions of superfluity. If only I could stop all that equipment jonesing long enough to see, which reminds me that I can't shoot straight either. Ever since, I never got trained, and I never had the practice that that war could have given me if only I hadn't refused to shoot those Vietnamese when the opportunity arose. Labeling me forever an oddball outsider with no choice left but to watch through my buzz as the world split in two, split in 22, or 30-06, or 223, or 45 automatic, or 9 millimeter or 12-gauge shotgun, bleeding to death in every corner of the world. What a shame, stuck in a traffic jam with this equipment, Jones, surrounded with idling engines, killing time, sitting here puffing and driving, stopping and going, waiting and dreading the moment we possess, anticipating the end when we go flying down the road into the future, leaving the past behind, losing the opportunity to know peace and silence harmony and justice, unity and joy, being and nothingness. You just heard Paul Richards reading from his poem, Equipment, from the chapbook entitled Refusenik. That was wonderful, Paul. Do you have some others for us? Secrets in my Oakland neighborhood. I have roamed the streets and sloshed up the creeks these last five decades in my neighborhood, walked past secrets hiding under floating styrofoam cups, under the hostile glares of strangers who live all around me and come from parts unknown, just like I do. Secret fears and falling tears welling up from subconscious moments of unspoken comprehension, blinded me against the sight of the things I now see as so obvious and so important. Things like the caves under the sidewalk along MacArthur Boulevard next to the freeway, where homeless people live secretly down below among posts and shadows, bare dirt and ivy. Driving up MacArthur Boulevard in my shiny truck protected from the cold and rain, traffic passing by carrying anonymous souls across my eyes for the first and only time, I'm now drawn to that stretch of sidewalk, knowing that below it are my homeless neighbors, cold and dirty, feared and forsaken. I see them wandering along Lakeshore and Grand Avenues, looking in garbage cans, eyes scanning the gutters like I did when I was a boy, looking for discarded cigarette butts, coins, or just anything someone might have dropped. My homeless neighbors are like the secret waters flowing through unknown creeks in subterranean depths of the urban Oakland I still love for some unknown reason. The creeks flow in dark round tunnels under the streets, like the one below 14th Avenue, or the one below Park Boulevard, or the one below Trestle Glen, or the one below Lakeshore, or the one below Highway 13 along the San Andreas Fault. When I was a boy and could fit in these tunnels without stooping over, I found them a wonderful adventure with my friends on a Saturday in the summer until I grew up and forgot them and most of my playfulness. 
Secret people and invisible waters emitting small sounds that are no match for the screaming roar of planes circling above in the sky or cars and trucks passing me by on the dangerous streets I know so well. Small as these sounds of homelessness and culverted water flowing in the darkness are, they have grown into a roar of their own, like small ticks of a time bomb threatening to show us how this party is going to end. Wow, Paul. Even though I've heard this before, it's so moving to hear these poems. Do you have any others for us? Thank you, Nina. Here's a couple of short ones. Peanut. While meditating upon a peanut, the shell of my whole world cracked. Cold War. In 1989, the Cold War stopped. The communist menace vanished, like a coin in a magician's hand. I was 45 years old. My whole life lived under the ideological cloud of Armageddon. It took five more years to realize the game was over. Over. No more reason to live like every moment was the last. At last. Well, it looks like that was just a pause because here we are all over again getting embroiled in Cold War with the Soviet Union or not so cold. Russia, I think it's called. Sorry, Russia. (laughs) I beg your pardon. A lot of people share that confusion. (laughs) The next poem I'd like to read is a longer one. It's called Refusenik. Refusenik. Mom's side. In 1944, the year I was born, millions of my mother's people, millions of my people, died in Nazi concentration camps. I didn't know them, never met them, only heard about them. Jews from Lithuania, near the border, so maybe it was Poland, where the Franks and the Waldsteins lived in the 1880s, caught in between Germany and Russia, Poland and Lithuania. Oy vey mir. My grandfathers had fled in the 1880s, came to America, Burlington, Vermont, Boston, Massachusetts, places like that. My relatives escaped from pogroms, hatred, jealousy, and fear, but never left the exile. Running away at 21 years of age, my mom continued the flight, escaped her relatives, storekeepers, stockbrokers, art collectors, became an intellectual communist. With mom... Way out here in California, I met no relatives, only heard about them, only felt that hole in my psyche where they should have been. If I had been there in Lithuania or or Poland, I'd be dead too. I'm no different than the ones who stayed. No different at all, just separated by decades and worlds, culture and family, separated by genocide at the hands of European nationalism, patriotism, war and anti-Semitism. Fifty years ago, Nazi concentration camps liberated. Well, liberated isn't the word unless you were in one. More like terminated, lease expired. Everyone wandering back to normal life, whatever that was. In the mid-1990s, the 50th anniversary of the end of World War II made big press with images of bodies, sunken eyes, in hollow sockets, staring up sightlessly from heaps of corpses, 
stacks of arms, legs, ribs, skin stretched tightly over bones piled in the mass graves. European archives bob to the surface, floatsome and jetsome, adrift in the wreckage of anti-Soviet ideology, telling us how murder and mayhem ran wild for decades in Eastern Europe, not just fascists killing Jews, but everyone killing everyone, a wild orgy of murder to settle old scores that private property, jealousy, greed, hatred, and fear left behind in the wake of primitive capitalist accumulation, blood flowing into the earth, laying to rest once and for all the pathetic remains of the culture of communalism, the last semblance of peace and justice, or was it just the previous version of mother theft and father greed going back to Greece and Rome. I'd been waiting since I was born, wondering whether or even if the world would take note of my people's demise. Now, in my 50th year, the world is awakened to it, as if for the first time. And now all of a sudden, this flood of images of genocide unlocks the secret I have searched for all these years, the secret inside my soul that has led me down this road. My ancestors' message. So simple. A revelation. They tell me their deaths mean war must end. Human butchery must stop. Mindless patriotism must cease. Nationhood must vanish. They tell me it was for my ancestors I refused to go to war. Not just my own stubborn view of it. For my ancestors, I refused to join the army. Not just my arrogant rejection of a citizen's duty. For my ancestors, I refused to become a killer. And I still refuse. These monstrous images flooding the news have rekindled my childhood horror with a message from those who fled the pogrom, from those who fled the family, from those who fled the exile but never escaped. Finally, I can understand what my ancestors want me to do. I can carry out my heart's desire in the company of my own nameless, faceless relatives whose lives were taken, the culmination of normal, regular, follow the leader, follow the rules, follow the crowd, mass culture. Now, I stand against the patriots, stand for peace, stand with humanity, Refuse to go along, refuse to kill, knowing that normal life, cursed life, ordinary everyday life is built upon, is actually the reflection of mass murder, mass death, ordinary everyday murder. Dad's side. My father carried a gun in the streets of San Francisco right after I was born. A gun to keep teamster goons at bay. A gun to make a militant live another day. A gun to keep the union strong. His gun, like a catalyst brewing up an explosive surge, disappeared from my life along with my father in 1946. He left us just as my grandmother, his mother Norma, died in a hospital at the hands of misguided medical injections and overdose of insulin. Norma gone, wife and kids gone, six months of not good days. Divorce catapulted him into a silent realm of mysterious movements gone away, leaving me to listen to the beat of an invisible drummer for whom I searched without knowing it. My ancestors fought in Indian wars in Oregon, 
and claimed their lands, as victors do, 257 acres to be exact, in 1857 in the wide green valleys of what is now downtown Salem in the Willamette Valley, where the river flows and the land is rich, where my great-great-grandfather farmed and raised ten kids. The children of the farmer searched for gold east of Salem, mined the riverbeds in the land of the Nez Pierce, in the land of Chief Joseph. One of the farmer's daughters married a miner, gave birth to three daughters, among them my grandmother, who married two miners, one after the other, that is, and gave birth to five children, including the youngest, my father, in a place over the mountain from the Waloa Valley, in a town called Sumter, surrounded by rows of river rock, dredged up in the search for gold. The 257 acres owned by my father's mother's mother's father had become downtown Salem, 50 blocks of downtown Salem, all gone in four generations. Sure is hard for poor folks to hold on to anything, ain't it? Catastrophic loss and loneliness followed him from his childhood. He fled his Oregon home when he was young, pushed out by depression and family feuds, poverty and divorce. When I was a child, my father handed me a geologist's hammer, with a point on one end and a flat square blunt end on the other, he was proud of that hammer. It showed in his eyes. It was my ancestors looking at me. It was my ancestors calling me through him without him saying a word. But in that void, that silence left by Indian wars and irresistible march of private property, by fruitless gnawing and boring of holes in the earth, piling up endless rows of miners' tailings of creek beds tossed on top of rich farmlands, sacrificed on the altar of greed, my father said farewell to his family and forest home, sailed around the world back and forth across the seas until he landed in the town of my birth in the city by the bay, where he took up the workers' cause, communists through and through. The rank-and-file militant adopting his enemy's enemy as his friend serving the community of the dispossessed, witness to the world, refugee from failed family greed and internecine wars no longer remembered, leaving life's goals discredited and the ancestral ship rudderless and adrift. My side. There they are, yelling at me, these two paths to silence. America's immigrant, working class, ruling class, private property, war is cool, never a doubt. Legacies mocking me behind the thin veneer of communist, socialist, anti-racist wholesomeness that grips my heart and soul until I want to explode in frustration and agony, mockery and foolishness. Born of communists in the California sunshine, wanderers, exiles, searching for communism instead of gold, searching for social coherence instead of suburban lawns, searching for modern ideals in the face of fractured families, oblivious to the future and the past, thinking modern thoughts from logical lofts above mass bases inside class struggle, creating life out of the whole cloth of dreamless nights. Nothing was said. Silence reigned while witch hunters roamed, dreams of socialism collapsed in messy divorce, union purges, nightmares of remorse as the Rosenbergs fried and the communists dreamed, ended amid nationalist screams. I first refused to salute the flag in 1953 when I was nine, one nation under God my ass, 
I walked out of my first and only meeting of the Boy Scouts down at the grammar school gym when it started to salute to our nation under God, threw rocks at the police cruising my Oakland streets, laughed at the FBI when they asked me, Where are your parents, little boy? Had holes burned in my brain by headlines screaming against communists with pictures of mom, by televised hearings of un-American witch hunters interrogating my dad. I was young. When the call came, for me, I was 18 when I signed up for the draft, walked down Hay Street to the Berkeley Post Office, took the form and wrote in my name in 1962 with World War II movies running around my brain. From the halls of Montezuma to the shores of Tripoli, John Wayne will fight your country's battles from sea to shining sea. I was 20 when I realized I would never serve, when I realized I would go to jail before I would kill for my country in Vietnam. I didn't really know why I refused. I thought it was about justice in Vietnam, which I'd never heard of outside of grimy newsprint. Thinking led me to it. But my ancestors put up the blockades, a cosmic knee-jerk, a refusenik in a rush to mass murder, something inside working on me. At the time, I just knew my parents' enemy was mine. The anti-communist Hooverite buffoons were ordering us to our deaths against communism when my father and mother were communists, and that was enough to think about right there. My intellectual task, take steps down the path, move away from the myth to end this terrible drift with its cycles of death and unconscious gore, remain silent no more, refusenik to the core. You've been listening to Paul Richards. He's been reading from his chapbook, Refuse Nick. Thank you very much, Nina. It's been a pleasure. For me, too. Thank you, Paul Richards. This has been Nina Serrano for Poet to Poet on Open Book. And I have in the studio Pablo Armando Fernandez, direct from Havana, Cuba. Pablo is one of the most respected and well-known Cuban poets, both at home and in the world. He's won many prizes, published many books, essays, and plays. Bienvenido, Pablo. Thank you. I'm very happy here. I'm so glad, and so glad that you've brought your poetry to share with us. Can you tell us a little bit about how did you become a poet? How did you start writing? Well, I started writing as a child. I was then probably 10 or 12 years old, I heard the first chapter of a soap opera based on Wuthering Heights. And Emily Bronte stole my soul and my mind. But I read it before it ended. And something happened to me. I heard a voice. Probably was not something that really I imagined. Probably I heard a conversation about the novel. But I heard somebody telling me, why do you pay so much attention to that decadent bourgeoisie? And don't think of us, look at us. We are here, lonesome, abandoned, suffering. We lack a voice. We lack a face. Please, think of us. And I started writing something called 
gestures was a way of getting closer to that human being. I wrote them in English. In 1945, I was 15 years old. Two weeks later, I became 16th in New York. And I kept the school because as I was a writer, I wanted to be a writer in English. It was not me. It was that voice who always told me what to write. And I met Carson McKellers. And Carson was very generous to me. And when I told her that I was a writer, she just told me, I would like to read those gestures, you call them. And Carson said that was poetry. I talked with her a lot about poetry. My eldest brother was a poet. And I've heard him and his friends reading poetry in my childhood. And I have read poetry also. But I was not a poet. When I left, Carson did something very fabulous. Took a pencil and divided the lines I had written and read them to me. And I said, well, that's your poetry, not mine. When I left her, I was crying. And a friend of mine that was waiting for me said, what's wrong with you? I said, well, you know, she said, I'm a poet. She said, of course, you're a poet. What do you think you are? Manila Harman have told you all the time, and me, that you are a poet. You don't trust us. I hope you trust her. She's a great writer, as you know. And I wrote a poem. And I wrote that poem in Spanish, not in English. And that changed my whole life completely. But as I was a writer, I kept thinking that I have to write prose. And I wrote, I have published three novels, a book of short stories, a book of a say. The play that I wrote and was produced in New York in 1958 is a poem, a dramatic poem. But I, now I accept that I am a poet. In 1959, when the Cuban Revolution triumphed, you returned to Cuba. Yes, I did. What have some of the changes of the revolution made in your life and in the life of your family? I'm 80 years old, so I'm ancient. Marti, Jose Marti, our prophets, apostles, taught us that native land is humanity. So I accepted those changes and the revolution gave me myself. I was back where I was born and there was the landscape, the history and culture waiting for my return. And from then I have written all these novels, short stories, poetry and so on. Thank you so much, Pablo Armando Fernandez, international poet from Havana, Cuba. Ancestors stir the pot. The ancestors like the kitchen. They are called by the sound of chopping, the clatter of pots and pans, and the promise of slow cooking. Polo prompts. Aren't you going to throw in a bay leaf? I don't like how it smells up the house, says Joe. But if more people might be coming, add another potato. Anna quietly says, it's nice to float a sprig of dill on top. Silent Rosa hints to add gumi, though when she was alive, she didn't speak English. Her daughter, Rosita, agrees, admitting that she hated to cook. A little more garlic makes it better, Ida says encouragingly. The 
before I pop the lid on to let it simmer, they all laugh to remember that cut raw onions made them cry. This has been Nina Sverno for the Poet to Poet series. Check out my website, ninaserrano.com, to hear other programs, poems, and a listing of my upcoming events. Thanks for listening. Smart investment. Support KPFA Radio today. We make the most of every dollar donated by producing truly independent news, analysis, cultural, and public affairs programming. You are essential in keeping that information flowing and KPFA on the air. Invest today. Become a member or an ally as a monthly sustainer. Online today at kpfa.org. And we promise to stay as vigilant as always. A human rights lawyer who has written The Plot to Scapegoat Russia, Dan Kovalik, believes this anti-Russian campaign is one of the biggest fake news operations in all of U.S. history. He'll be throwing down an instructive challenge to mainstream media in Berkeley on Thursday evening, September 7th, 730 at St. John's Presbyterian Church, 2727 College Avenue. There's free parking and wheelchair access. Flashpoint's Kevin Pina will host. Tickets at brownpapertickets.com and supportive bookstores. And you are listening to 94.1 KPFA and 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF.